Amen. Sermon text is taken from Isaiah chapter 6. We hear verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of the one who called, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, I am doomed, I am ruined. Because I am a man with unclean lips, and I dwell among a people with unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, carrying a glowing coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with the coal and said, Look, this has touched your lips, so your guilt is taken away, and your sin is is forgiven. Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And we pray, O Lord, holy, holy, holy God, purify us from our guilt and sin, so that we may stand and remain always in your holy presence. Amen. Please be seated. Isaiah sees God, and this is no small, weak, disinterested, flawed God. Everything here in this description of God emphasizes how great and glorious, how powerful and holy God is. He is high and exalted, Isaiah writes. His appearance and his robe is so glorious and great that it fills the entire temple. He's attended to by this special class of angels, six-winged angels called seraphim. And they make a powerful pronouncement. They describe God here before Isaiah. And the words that they use carry so much weight and meaning that that by speaking, the very foundations of the temple start shaking. And these are words that continue to shake us every communion Sunday because we repeat this song of the seraphim in the words of the Sanctus, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of your glory. The word holy comes from the Hebrew word kadosh. It means set apart, separate, Sacred, consecrated, dedicated, special. It's the opposite of ordinary or common or vulgar. And this triple repetition of that word, kadosh, 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 holy, 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 it not only alludes to the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's clearly named and described elsewhere in Scripture, but in the Hebrew language, it's also a superlative So it means that he is the supremely most holy God. He is above all. He has no rival. He is one of a kind. He is the one who deserves all glory, honor, and praise. And this is also emphasized in the rest of the song of the seraphim. They go on and call him the the Lord God of Sabaoth. 
It's a word we don't use too often. The translation is Lord of armies. Think of the angel multitude that appeared before the shepherds singing on the night of Christ's birth. Or think of Jesus when he was arrested in the garden. And what he said, he said, I could call on 12 legions of angels to come and defend me right now. God is a God of might and power. He is one who has an undefeatable army. And so he is not one to be underestimated or questioned. This is also emphasized in that closing statement of those seraphim when, he's, when they say, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Just look around and see the handiwork of God. See evidence of God's power and glory all around us. Similar to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Everything here points to the power, the glory, the holiness of Almighty God. Now, there are many people out there, of course, who, who doubt God. There are many people who question God. They refuse to take God at his word. Many people out there outright reject God. They look at what we just confessed a few moments ago in the Athanasian Creed, and they might laugh at us. This should not surprise us. When we confess our faith in the Athanasian Creed, we are confessing that, that we hold to these things by faith. We are understanding that, that our trust in the triune God, that he is one God and at the same time three persons, we understand and we profess that this is something that goes beyond our understanding. How are we to explain these things? The best way that we can possibly explain these things that go beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension, is as we just did in the words of the Athanasian Creed. And we emphasize, we hold to these things by faith. And we profess that, that we believe in these things. And that these are important things to believe in. That our salvation depends upon believing in these things. There are many people out there who scoff at this. Maybe you've even been ridiculed. Maybe you've been mocked because you profess your faith in a triune God. I had someone once ask me, how in the world can you believe in, in a God who is at the same time three and one? That seems like complete and utter nonsense. That doesn't make any sense to my mind. I said, well, that's the way that he is described in God's word and we hold to God's word. This person said, yeah, but it doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't fit in my brain. So I can't possibly believe that. How would you answer that person? St. Paul answered that person a few moments ago in our epistle lesson. When he said, oh, how deep is the wisdom and knowledge of God. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are beyond finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? My answer would be, if you can have a God that you can fit into your own brain, well, then I don't want that God. No, thank you. Don't we want a God who is bigger, greater, holier, wiser, more powerful than we are? 
And if he is these things, well, then shouldn't there be things about God that go beyond our understanding, that go beyond our comprehension, things that God does that we might not get, and yet we can say, God is bigger than me. He knows what he's doing. This is something that Isaiah grasped. This is something that Isaiah understood. He understood that God was bigger, more powerful, holier than he was. And we see him profess this very thing in our text as he humbles himself. And he's standing there in the presence of God and he says, woe to me. He says, I am doomed. I am ruined because I am a man with unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips, and here I am, standing in the presence of God, seeing the king, the Lord of armies himself. Isaiah, here in our text, he, he's admitting, I shouldn't be here. I have no right to be here, because God is holy. I am not. I am a sinner. And to stand in his holy presence, I should be annihilated. I should be instantly disintegrated because I am a sinner. I have unclean lips, Isaiah says. Let me ask you, as you and I think about standing in God's presence, how clean are your lips? Do you always proclaim the holiness of God and do you praise him with your lips? Or have you instead dishonored God? Have you used his, his name in inappropriate ways and in vain? Have you constantly thanked God for everything that he blesses you with? Or have you instead used your lips to grumble and complain about things and about situations in your life? Do you put the best construction on everything? When you're dealing with the people around you, with your neighbors? Or do you instead use your lips to gossip about them and to slander the people around you? Do you use your lips to let kindness and love flow off towards other people? Or do you instead let words of sinful anger and harsh insults or crude jokes come flying from those lips? Dear friends, don't we have to admit like Isaiah does here, we're in trouble. Who are we to presume that we have any right to stand before a holy God? Don't you and I also have to admit the same thing that Isaiah says? I should be doomed. If Isaiah has unclean lips, what about mine? They're filthy. I have no right to come and stand in the presence of holy God. I shouldn't be here. But thanks be to God for his mercy. God changes the situation for Isaiah. Isaiah goes from one who should be doomed, who should be excluded, to one who is now welcomed and holy in himself. And we hear how this happens in our text. Isaiah describes how, how a coal that was taken from the altar of sacrifice is now brought to Isaiah. It's pressed to those lips so that those unclean lips of his are now purified. And Isaiah gets to hear this glorious message. What a thing to hear. Look, this has now touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Think of how comforting that would have been instantly for Isaiah. Isaiah did nothing in all of this, right? 
God is the one who was acting. God was the one who was bringing this coal to Isaiah. God was the one who was doing the purifying. Isaiah was just standing there acknowledging, I, I am a sinner. I need God's help. And yet Isaiah was now there in the presence of God, that coal having been pressed to his lips, and he now had every right to be there in the presence of God. Because Isaiah's sins were now totally gone. They were forgiven, which leaves him holy. He was now set apart, dedicated, special to God. And again, that had nothing to do with what Isaiah had done, but everything to do with what God had done for Isaiah. And this is also how it works for you and me still today. Now, later on in his prophecies, Isaiah would describe in more detail this coal, this purifying coal from the altar. He describes it more as he goes on to describe the work that our Savior Jesus carries out. Isaiah so beautifully described Jesus as being the suffering servant who himself was without sin. He was holy, he was perfect, he was righteous in every way, and yet he was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions upon the cross. Isaiah points to our Savior, the the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who is holy and righteous in every way, and yet he was the one who would be killed, slaughtered upon the altar of the cross in order to pay for the sins of the world. This coal is Jesus, and that coal, Jesus, is now delivered to you so that you are purified, you are now forgiven, That coal is now delivered from God to you. It's poured upon your head in holy baptism. It's put to your own lips as you gather around God's altar and you receive holy communion. This coal of Jesus and the forgiveness and holiness that it brings is put into your hearts as you now hear the preaching of God's word. And this means that the exact same declaration that Isaiah heard is now spoken to you. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins are forgiven. How great is that? The holiness of our Savior Jesus, the ability, the right to go and stand before a holy God at complete and total peace with him, that's something that is now shared with you. We heard this a few moments ago emphasized in our gospel lesson. John wrote and said, Everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You, you who hold to the Catholic faith, that's what we confess. And by Catholic, we mean the universal, found everywhere, basic faith in the Holy Trinity and in the God-man, our Savior, Jesus Christ, You are declared now by that faith to be a holy one of God. You, who previously had unclean lips, you are now declared to be a saint of God, and you carry the name of the Holy Trinity upon you. The day is coming also. It's promised and guaranteed to you by the resurrection of our Savior Jesus when you will rise from your own grave 
and you will get to go and stand before God, face to face with God, not in a vision like Isaiah had here, but in reality, you will get to stand in the presence of holy God himself, smiling upon you, because you possess holiness. You possess the forgiveness of Christ Jesus, that coal from the altar. After Isaiah had, uh, had been cleansed, he then hears God ask a question. God asks, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Interesting there how God refers to himself both in the singular and plural. Isaiah answers this, this question. Isaiah has a change of heart. What a, what a change for Isaiah. He had gone from one who had said, I am doomed, I am ruined, I shouldn't be here, to suddenly rejoicing, being eager, being excited. He raises his hand. He says, here am I, Lord, send me. This is the kind of happy heart that you and I can have now too. This is the happy heart that we get to have as we go back out into the world because our sins have been forgiven, because we now stand before God as his holy ones. We are assured that we get to stand in his presence with his smile upon us. And so we can now say as well, Lord, I belong to you. I know the peace that I have with you. I know the eternal future that is in store for me where I get to be in your presence all the time. You have purified me of my sins. You have purified these lips that were unclean, O Lord. So let me thank and praise you now. Send me out into the, into the world. Lord, use me. Let me go out into the callings and vocations that you place before me so that I can now be your mouth, that I can be your hands and your feet so that I can go out and serve the people around me. And we also pray that God would then work through us and through all of his holy ones so that more and more people might be able to come and stand in his holy presence at peace with him without fear. Because we now get to share that purifying coal, that coal that has cleansed us of our sins. We now get to share that cleansing coal of our Savior with those around us. What a blessing it is for us to be able to stand in the presence of a holy God. All glory be to him. Amen. And the peace of God that passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.